0: I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Jasmine Lawrence built products since she was 13 years old. As a teenager, she founded Eden Body Works, a company that provides natural products for the hair and body. These products are available at major retail stores and have paved the way for Jasmine to grow as an entrepreneur. Jasmine explained the challenges of building tangible products and how this is different than building software. Jasmine is a program manager at Microsoft in the HoloLens team and throughout her career, she has worked in robotics and designing software in the gaming space. We talked about robots in the healthcare industry and about human-centered design At the end, we talked about time management and the importance of planning. If you have any feedback on the show, please write a review on iTunes. Send me a tweet at TechWomenShow or a private message. I really enjoy hearing from the listeners of the show. Thank you. Here at Microsoft with Jasmine Lawrence, Program Manager in the HoloLens team. Jasmine, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. You've built products since you were 13 years old, and these range from hair products to software for robots, software for video games. I want to begin by talking about your first product Eden Body Works. How did the idea of eating body works originate? Awesome, yeah, definitely. So, Eden Bodyworks
1: is a company that makes all natural hair and body care products. I founded it almost thirteen years ago when I was thirteen, which is pretty cool to say. But I started that company based on my own needs. Uh, when I was eleven years old, I got a relaxer put in my hair, and so a relaxer was a chemical process to make your hair straight because I have extremely curly hair. Mm-hmm. And during that process, the the chemicals just didn't react well with my skin and with my hair, and I had a lot of breakage, damage, and scarring on my scalp. So I I didn't want to use chemical products anymore. One, I didn't understand them. And two, they had proved that they were, you know, no good for me. So I started looking around trying to find natural ingredients and natural products and things on the market were way out of my price range or out of my parents' price range at the time. I really couldn't afford some of the products that were already out there. So I decided to go to libraries because this was 2004, and I think Google was just starting, but probably not at the caliber it's at today. And I would physically go to libraries and get books about herbs and spices and oils and, you know, with my parents' permission, you know, order some of those things or, you know, have them drive me around to different shops. And I just started mixing things in my kitchen and in my basement, And I finally found an oil that was based on a jojoba oil that helped me start healing my scalp, being more healthy, and growing my hair back. And it wasn't until two years later, when I was 13, uh, I went to a summer camp. And at that camp, that was hosted by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Uh, we spent two weeks just learning about how to start a small business, how a small business can help you you know, meet someone's need. And that really motivated me and inspired me to impact the lives of other women to have healthy hair and healthy lifestyles. Yeah.
0: And like you mentioned, when you were conducting research, you were going to the libraries, mm-hmm. mixing chemicals in your basement, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: how did you know that what you were developing was safe for people.
1: So it was less chemicals and more like ingredients. I felt more like a chef than I did a chemist, right? I was working with things like lavender petal or rose oil or water or these different things like that. And Mm -hmm. each one of these different ingredients has very well-documented properties and things like that. And the biggest thing, I say the biggest learning of, you know, working in my kitchen lab or working with different testers like my cousins and my sisters was how people personally reacted to different ingredients. whether it was how it impacted their skin or the aroma or whatever it was when they were combined. Like, I know a lot of people who just don't like peppermint because it's a very strong scent. But then I know other people who have very fond memories of peppermint and reminds them of the holidays. And, you know, so just, you know, their emotional connection as well as their physical reaction was something that, you know, I learned is going to be very important. But from the documentation, you know, peppermint can do X, Y, and Z for you and lavender is great. It helps you sleep. All those types of things. I would kind of combine the superpowers of the different ingredients to make something that satisfied, you know, whatever I was going for with
0: that product. And the characteristics that you aim for in this product were high quality, Mm -hmm. all natural, Mm -hmm. and affordable. Did you define these characteristics early on? Oh, absolutely. Like these were
1: fundamental differentiators at that point for Eden Body Works. I needed something, like I, I couldn't afford the things that I wanted to buy. And when I was making these products, I didn't want to make that same mistake. I wanted it to be approachable. I feel like sometimes when you want to make good choices in life, they feel just out of reach and like they're incentivizing bad things. And so I want to incentivize people to be able to get good things. And so we try and find the highest quality ingredients we can um, and release them at a margin that makes sense for people.
0: Yes, and even currently when I hear all natural, high quality products, I associate this with more expensive. Was it challenging to keep it affordable?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean it is a constant focus of what we do as we're doing product development, trying to find alternative ways to either acquire the ingredients or travel to new places or you know, we're very open to working with new people and new sources and so the company is just centered around making sure we have the best, but also not jacking up the price to, you know, be out of range. Because I think the, the price raise is not so much these ingredients are hard to find or they're they're high in demand. It's really about the premium that people Put on things like their health and their beauty, and that they're willing to spend that much because those two things are valuable to them and, and capitalizing on that.
0: And Eden Body Works, they are physical products while software is not tangible. You studied computer science at Georgia Institute of Technology and have worked at Microsoft building software. How does this compare to building tangible products?
1: Awesome, yeah, so it's been very different. When I started just doing product formulation, you know, like I said, the physical reactions, all those types of things, how it smells, how people hold it, that stuff, um, you know, can really stray people off, even though the product itself might have the qualities that they're looking for in a product. If they don't like those physical characteristics of it, it will really deter them. Whereas with software, it's always been very much about the functionality. Does it like, does it do what I want it to do? And the really, and the shared part of, you know, building, you know, shampoo and building software is about the experience, right? How, you know... Yeah, sure, it does what it does, but did I enjoy that process? And I really love being a part of that experience, right—the experience of developing products and solving the need. And um, I would say, as a program manager, I find the most joy out of figuring out, you know, how do we get through the weeds of what has to get done so that we can make an experience that people actually enjoy. Because they don't have to use my products, right? They don't have to buy our software. They have choice in these things, Um, and so I want to make sure that when they do make a choice, that they feel good and feel smart. That made the right one does the planning aspect change oh absolutely microsoft is a massive organization and there are so many interconnected stories and dependencies and there's a strategy that impacts people around the world globally and there's a thousand of us that are you know all involved in it and so when you're planning something at that scale there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of sign-off. There's a lot of hierarchy that goes um, because it, there's there's massive risk there. Whereas with my team, we're very community-driven. Um, not to say Microsoft isn't, but we're very community-driven. We're a super small team. We can iterate so quickly because we are 100% remote, so we don't all work in the same office. We're not co-located. We're used to over-communicating and moving on the go and, and trying different things and getting feedback from tons of different signal. And so we're small and we just move you know at a different velocity than than microsoft does but our impact is also very different right yeah we could get feedback on a hundred different formulas um, without have to worry about you know people copying and things like that and we have these small trusted circles and i love seeing Microsoft do that with the windows insider program and and seeing how we pull in customers but it's just totally different people in the beauty industry are a lot more willing to take risks and try new things versus you know selling a hundred thousand licenses of a piece of software that you need to get your business done right like people are a lot they have higher expectations of how software will perform and they're not used to regular people I would say everyday people aren't used to being beta testers of of that type of software so I definitely see people transitioning like to get the better stuff earlier trying more pre-release software but yeah it's a lot different
0: and the production scale is also much different with software you can just copy Uh. the stuff.
1: Oh, it's so true. Like with software, it's just it's whatever you click one button and they download however many instances they need. But there have definitely been times where you know even good press has kind of thrown us off because we overestimated the reach of a certain you know media outlet. Like for example, when I was on Oprah, um, we were still manufacturing things out of my home and we got thousands of orders in that one hour while it was on TV, and then you know thousands of orders subsequent days as people heard the story and things like that. And I was definitely not prepared you know for wow I didn't think people would attach the story I didn't know it would lead to that many orders and you know even sometimes where we get you know in a magazine like a prominent magazine might someone might mention us as a product that they like right so that's not something we could have even anticipated you'll see a huge spike on my website of whatever product was mentioned and you know it's it just kind of throws off your production schedule mm-hmm. because we work with a lot of people to store and manufacture and deliver all these things and we have so many different retailers like Walmart and Target and Walgreens who all have different schedules of when they expect delivery and how many of what and we do as much modeling as we can but yeah it's definitely a lot harder than software
0: and like you mentioned (laughs) you were on Oprah and Mm -hmm. I saw a follow-up on this and I like that she said she had the same problem her hair fell due to this chemicals and like you said after being in that show a lot of people heard about you I know, like you mentioned, it was difficult to keep up, but what did you start doing to keep up?
1: Oh, absolutely. So uh, there were two things that were happening simultaneously. So the first thing I did was go online and try and figure out, okay, I really need to find a manufacturer. And I knew that that was going to be a long um, a long process. And then the other thing that was happening is I started immediately hiring whoever would help support. So my cousins would come work on weekends or my neighbors or you know some people from after school, they would help you know put things together. And even during that process, I was learning how to let go of the control because for you know the first two or three years it was me primarily me and my sisters mixing every single batch putting on every single label screwing every single cap on every bottle and to train people to do that at a quality that I felt comfortable with took a lot so you know I started exercising with people and then you know reaching out going to visit different manufacturing facilities to meet the owners to meet the people on the shop floor to see you know how they would handle something that was so precious to me Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually you know formed a relationship and been able to work with you know the same group for for a few years now and it has been awesome it's reduced my stress level immensely you know I feel like they're ready to accommodate and you know that they're proud too they're excited when we succeed and they're always trying to iterate on new methods to make it faster and safer and I really love that growth but it has challenged me
0: and like you said letting go can be hard for example for me I'd be worried Involving more employees, are they going to steal the formula Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. how do you control things like that? Yeah,
1: legal. My mom actually has been doing contract law for several years and we had NDAs, you know, just like any professional company would. NDAs is information is a part of your employment. We terminate your employment. You can't share this. It's confidential, all of that stuff. But also just separately... Like the amount of passion and dedication and focus that it would take for someone else to try and do exactly what I'm doing, even with all the information laid out in front of them, to me, it feels impossible, right? I was sacrificing, you know, relationships and time and and money and all this energy. And uh, I don't know if anybody wants, you know, Eat and Body Works to succeed as much as I do, you know, so I definitely wasn't worried about that from that perspective, but it was tough letting go, but it was, the returns were
0: immense. And earlier on, you mentioned the importance of feedback and hearing what your customers are saying. And I heard you mention that you like watching videos of people talking about your products and reading about what they love, but also about what they don't love. In technology, I've heard two perspectives. One is to ask the customer what they think and incorporate their feedback. And the other one is the Steve Jobs approach where he states the customer doesn't know what they want. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on these two approaches?
1: Yeah, so I definitely believe that there is a balance when you're... In a position of innovation, sometimes it can be difficult for a customer to even fathom what is possible. And so I, I agree that you probably, at, at those types of points where it's, it's just formulating, it's just beginning, that they can't kind of critically explain to you what they want. What they can verbalize or demonstrate through their actions are their needs, where the gaps are, where their pain points are. And it's not up to them to find the solutions to those. That's where we as engineers need to be innovative and, and be the solution drivers. But it is up to us to listen and to be open to understanding, hey, this is what's important to me. You can satisfy it however you want, but this is what matters and this is the priority. So I definitely believe that, you know, we do have some personal responsibility to drive solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, But then in terms of like reading that feedback, I think we are responsible in responding. As people say things, if we have opportunity where there's things and information we can share to tell them why we had to make a choice we had to make, I think we should be vulnerable and transparent with those decisions. And even letting them know that they're heard, right, that their tweets or their Instagram posts aren't going into a black box where we're up there with our millions of dollars doing whatever we want. Um, Because at Eat and Body Works, like, we're such a small team, we're such a small organization that, you know, everything feels personal, right? Like we're not numb to it because we don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of voices yelling at us. But the people who have taken that time out of their schedule to verbalize their opinion, that still matters to us. And that has enabled us to grow and satisfy them in ways that our competitors can't or haven't, right? And so that's an exciting differentiator, I would say, as a group that develops products that is more solution-oriented, right? Because some people do sell products where it's just about getting something out there, generating demand, you know, whatever they turn over it's done. But what we're, you know, at Eaton Body Direction, I feel the same way about Microsoft. We're pitching is not just a product, but a relationship with you as a person, and we're invested in impacting your life. And one, we can't impact a life that we don't know about, and we don't understand. And the only way to get that information is to to somehow form trust and allow you to share that life with us.
0: Yeah. Or with some products, for example, what I think is wearables. It's important to. Get feedback from people because some might find it's too heavy or it's too light. So, just to troubleshoot those things. Exactly. And when you were studying computer science, you worked on writing software for robots. And I saw you had exposure to robots in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. What are some tasks where robots are being used in this space that oh. you've seen?
1: There's so much. I think the one that is probably the most visible is with surgery, like assisting uh, surgeons and um, reducing. I know it does reduce the healing time because there's so much precision, and you can be computer guided, and you can, you know, have insights on the operating floor that you can before. Um, there's also a lot going on in, I would say, therapy, and just uh, emotional attachment. So there are definitely robots in nursing homes and elderly care homes where you're having that emotional response from a creature or or something like that. So you feel less lonely and you have an outlet to actually express yourself socially um, and build that relationship there. Um, the things that I uh, worked on were cooperative tasks, mm-hmm. so um, like a robot nurse that would live in your home, like a live-in nurse, and would remind you of things like, hey, take your medication, or you know, check in with you if you're okay, and they're looking for these signs of health and active behavior, and would communicate with your family on your behalf if they see an issue, because sometimes at that age, it's hard to speak up for yourself, because you don't want to lose your independence, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like a good middle ground to kind of have something observing you, and not a person kind of breathing down your neck all the time. Time,
0: so it's not that there's a shortage of caretakers and nurses. Right? No, it was
1: like a middle ground where the elderly person they their independence and they live on a home on their own and their own own schedule. And that robot there is to assist and to compliment and to make the family and the other caregivers feel more comfortable giving that person that freedom. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be an embodied robot. We talked about in, in our, there's a Georgia tech smart home, just a network of sensors throughout the house that look for, you know, heat in the kitchen or, you know, leaks in the bathroom or different things like that, that, you know, if there was another person there keeping an eye out on, on it, you know, They'd be able to take care of it for that person who you know might have trouble reaching the floor or might forget to turn the stove off. Like little things like that, where the house can can manage itself um to an extent to keep the person safe, but that person still has all the freedom to live in that system o- on their own.
0: And that's interesting, the emotional part of it because I thought initially it's, for example, I think in Japan there's not going to be enough people to take care of the elderly, mm-hmm. but even if there is they feel more independent with a robot. Absolutely. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, and I love that part of robotics, the human aspect of it. Um, That really motivated me to get my master's in human-centered design and engineering because, again, it's not just about the product or that solution. It's how it integrates into someone's life, how they're going to feel about it, Um, and and thinking about some of those more abstract advantages of bringing the software, bringing the technology in there, accommodating people's feelings about it. Back
0: when you were a student and you had access to the robots... Were there some limitations that you saw working with them, like they're fragile or something? Yeah,
1: definitely. They're expensive. They are prohibitively expensive. So even if I wanted to continue my research independently, I'd have to get some massive grants or prove to someone that I know what I'm doing. I'm going on this path. I have the support. I can almost guarantee you that I would succeed because I don't have the clout or the legacy of a research institute to back my knowledge explorations. Another thing was... There's so much going on. There's so many people with very discrete topics that they're they're good at. So like mobility or perception or, you know, mapping different spaces. And what I didn't see is a, is a focus or a prioritization on combining those systems. Of course, there's a ton of complexity when it comes around that, but a lot of the conferences and a lot of the research I saw was very scoped to, hey, we're going to make an articulated hand for a robot. And it's not focused around so it can pick up things or so it can play rock, paper, scissors, or so it can blah, it's just we're gonna make this hand. We're gonna make physical models of, of it and you know, figure out you know what type of grasps and gestures it can do, and then essentially that's the end of your research, right? Um, and even as I was doing that research, I thought, wow. I find more joy, more excitement figuring out, oh, what can we do with an articulated hand? How can we help people? What problems can we solve? Than I do in developing the physical models or the little motors or, you know, the tactile sensors. Um, And so I definitely knew that, you know, in technology development, I wanted to move up the stack one level and be on the application side. Um, I did miss out on the kind of excitement of discovery and inventing, but you still get that when you're trying to find out what what do we do with it, you know?
0: Or like you send the... More of the human-centered component.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, because technology just doesn't exist for itself. Like, we can have all this information, all this knowledge, and it be worthless to impacting actual people's lives, which is what I think we're working for. Mm -hmm.
0: I want to talk a bit about time management next. I saw a blog post that you wrote titled, Don't Say I Never Told You, Time (laughs) Management. (laughs) Yeah. And you said, one thing that I realized is that if I didn't start making a plan for the day, that I was going to waste it. Mm-hmm. When do you make the plan for the day?
1: It depends. It depends on what day it is, right? There's some days that are more special than others. But typically, I'm reviewing it the day before, or the week before, or a month before. Sometimes you just know you have a ton of things coming up, and so you want to be a bit more diligent. Like last month, April, <laughs> May 1st, um, so, yeah, last month I knew that I had my sister coming in for a week. I knew that I had some work deadlines. I knew I had a weekend devoted to a friend and some um, cross-country travel coming up. And I knew, man, April, it was my mom's birthday. I was like, man, April is not going to be an easy month, right? So I s- scheduled in a massage. I scheduled in some hangouts. Like I looked at the month holistically, probably in month chugs. That's probably reasonable to say that I look at it a month at a time. Um, When I'm looking at, man, April was massive. Let's not make May that way. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't do a bunch of months, you know, where I'm doing way too much, even if, you know, I'm doing a lot of stuff for myself. And yeah, and then just day by day, like before I go to bed, I try and mentally prepare for tomorrow's gonna start at six PM or six A. M. and it's not gonna end until eleven thirty. Like you're gonna have a good breakfast that day, you're gonna be or you know, when I go to bed I'm kinda of thinking about, Okay, tomorrow is gonna be tough or tomorrow's gonna be easy, don't worry about it, you can sleep in, like have some good dreams, like trying to think about it the day before and then doing whatever I can, like the week before to reaffirm kind of loose commitments or, you know, try and get back as much time as I can on a week that might seem more packed than I want it to be.
0: One thing that I've heard is that if you write one thing to do for a day, your day will adapt and you will only achieve that one thing. Mm -hmm. And if you had written 10 things down, your day will somehow stretch you to finish those 10 things. Do you agree with this? I do agree to
1: the extent that you are a person who likes setting goals and writing lists because some people they'll say the most important thing is that I order this wedding cake and like they get it done and they have so much joy that they actually accomplish that one mission that they're like I don't need to do anything else today. And there are days like that where, like, um, I was giving a, a demo to a CVP at Microsoft and I was like, nothing else matters but doing this demo. After this demo, I'm going home. I'm doing nothing. That is it. But if I was like, you know what, after the CVP demo, here's some other things I could voluntarily do, I would probably knock those things off because um, for me, when I accomplish one thing, I get energy to do more, right? I'm just like, boom, boom, boom. Like, I I'm, I want to hit a streak or, you know, get a combo going on um, yeah. from a video game perspective. But yeah, I do believe that you should set your goals higher than you ever believed you could attain because that's what's going to push you and grow you and stretch you. And yeah, I really like that about life, that the 24 hours, just the different things people can get done.
0: So you do write more things that you actually end up doing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I have personally, I have a long list of things I'd like to do with my entire life. And these are like aspirational statements, like change someone for the better or invest a ridiculous amount of money in some organization or like sell something for a ridiculous amount of money. Like yeah. these crazy things that I'm not actively, I won't say not actively working towards every day, but they don't impact massively my everyday decisions. And then there are some things where I'm like, hey, if you're driving home from work and you pass a Safeway, like you have an in-progress grocery that's on your phone that you can go tick text your roommate if she needs anything, like get stuff done on the go to kind of optimize those those little nuggets of time where you're like, hmm, I could spend what time watching TV or I could get three or four of these things done.
0: Is there a specific tool that you like for tracking all this? Um,
1: so I've been using uh, notes, just the notes app that's on my phone. Sometimes I physically write things down on paper, and it really just depends on the environment, like. When I'm at work I like to write things down on paper that are immediate like urgent things that need to happen right now or things that were like dropped in my lap by uh, you know someone who just passed by but overall at work yeah I have a OneNote as well that tracks the different projects I'm working on and honestly work is different because you know, it's for Microsoft. And so I always try and keep my notes thorough enough that, you know, if I couldn't do this job anymore, if I couldn't come to work, that someone could open my OneNote and just carry on and keep driving my projects. Whereas at home, everything's a scribble, a doodle, a shorthand, because that's just like my life and no one else has to interpret it. And so like kind of you know, fast and loose and and things like that. But I did start using this new app called Habitica. I actually don't know if it's new, but, or it's like Habit RPG. It's just like gamifies the process of making to-do lists and, you know, doing things like forming repetitive habits, different things like that. And it's been really helpful and, and motivating me. And it still gives me that, you know, visceral sense of physically checking something off and, you know, seeing some animation or hearing some ding, you did it, yay. So I do like that.
0: Yeah, me too. I definitely like that type of feedback. Mm -hmm. Well, Jasmine, thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you today.
1: Yeah, that was really fun. I loved your question. Thanks for having me.